we all can agree that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice evil. We all want justice for the world, but we each carry within us a standard of righteousness based on our own perceived godliness and goodness. Furthermore, we will tolerate only as much evil in the world as we can accept it within ourselves. And when we feel resentment towards God for not eradicating evil in the world, we forget that eliminating all evil will mean eliminating the end of us too. You see, the judgment of God falls upon every person because the standard of righteousness is perfection. Therefore, the natural sort of question would be, why are any of us alive? Why have we not been reduced to the cinder of God's wrath? Is it not because of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, as in chapter 2 of verse 4? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up the wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteousness judgment will be revealed. In other words, it's called grace. And that's the reason why we have not been burnt up. So just recapping from verses 5 to 11, you see at the end of days, there will be a terrifying courtroom scene involving every human being who has ever taken the breath on earth. The deeds of each man and woman will be laid on a scale and the weight against the holy character of God and the very definition of righteousness, wealth, power, position, race, color, nationality, heritage and philosophy will count for nothing. Religion will count for nothing. The standard will be the same for all. Those who had access to the law and those who did not have, God will render to each person according to his deeds. Now according to the promise of the Old Testament, as in verse 6 of chapter 2, quoting Psalms 62 verse 12, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. And then we read Proverbs 24, 12. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Now this is then repeated by Jesus at Matthew 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And then this is described in detail by John in the book of Revelation. The reward for righteousness is eternal life. And if you're looking at Romans chapter 2 verse 7, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness there will be wrath and fury as we mentioned before paul has not contradicted himself in the earlier he wrote that 
it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That was chapter 1 verse 16. And then he quoted the Old Testament prophet declaration that the righteous will live by faith. You remember Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. He merely meant to clarify that each person will be judged by his or her deeds, not saved by them. At the end of the days, each will lay his or her deeds on the scale and they will be found wanting. Now, no number of deeds will balance the righteousness of God on, on the other side, not even come close to it actually. So Paul's point is simple. There is no partiality with God, as we see in verse 11. All have equal opportunity to stand before the judge to present evidence of their own righteousness and the standard will be the same for all. Now Paul warned us, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves. In verse 5, anyone daring to presume that he or his other deeds are sufficiently good for eternal life. So looking at uh, verses 12 to 16, the old saying, as everyone knows, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, seems to be especially appropriate in light of Paul's words. We all intend to do well. We all intend to please God. But the question is, do we act on that knowledge? And when we do act, are our actions righteous? Some might take issue with the Apostle's statement. Now, all who have sinned without, now that means of having heard the law, will also perish, not having heard the law. That's verse 12. Now, that hardly seems fair, isn't it? How can someone be justly punished for breaking rules that they knew nothing about? If you think about it, Gentiles living in places far removed from the promised land may have never known a single Hebrew or a, a script of the law. But it says that he kept every man, woman, bears the image of God, an image smudged by sin. But God's image nonetheless as part of that image includes an innate sense that some actions are good and some actions are bad. The question one would have is, is this actually fair? Now one understanding of good may be flawed. Nevertheless, even by an imperfect standard, no one lives righteously. No one has ever perfectly obeyed his or her conscience. So you see, at the end of the days, when the final verdict is rendered, the deeds of each person will have to be weighed and found lacking. The ignorance of the law is no excuse. Each person will be judged according to his or her knowledge of right and wrong and by any standards. The law of Moses or the Gentiles' own conscience, each person will be found guilty. Now it's depending on how you look at it. Religion can be a, either a good thing or a bad thing. We generally look at religious people favorably, even when we don't agree with them. But in today's context, uh, I will say looking at today's religious leaders, uh, you know, especially in South Africa, um, it's, a, it's a good money maker and it's a good business to go into. 
But let's not get too carried away and off tangent here. We look at people like Billy Graham or we look at people like Mother Teresa, you know, despite their religious affiliations of denominations, you know, you can see preeminently that God has moved sovereignty and by their love and grace for others, uh, they could easily be seen to be disciples of Jesus. When people behave and believe in something greater than themselves, they generally behave better. Now, no matter how great a person can be or how wonderfully they follow religion, genuine Christian practice has nothing to do with religion. For one has become a Christian, he or she must first accept that there is no amount of effort on doing anything, for there is no distance between us and our sin. Noble religion efforts bring us any closer to God. Only the grace of God will do that. God's grace provides salvation. We cannot earn favor. We do not deserve it. And kindness we cannot repay. So by the end of chapter 1, Paul had demonstrated the Gentiles have condemned themselves by chasing after false gods. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, he proves that in pursuing the one true God on one's own terms is no better. We cannot satisfy our own self-defined standards of righteousness. Listen to a quote by Donald Gray Barnhouse. He says, uh, open quotes, there are those who are attached to form, ceremony, liturgy, religious precepts and practices, and all the attitudes that go with such attachment, and who are yet alien to the grace of God. They have ritual without redemption, works without worship, form of service without the fear of God in its proper sense. And thus, they come under the condemnation of God. It makes no difference what name they go by, the principles is the same. In the day of the New Testament was written, the argument was against the religious Jews. Today, it would be against the zealous Roman Catholics or the fervent fundamentalists just as much as it was against the Jew in Paul's day. The profession of religion, even though it has been divinely revealed religion, is not enough. If the one who professes the religion is not in some sense transformed by it, close quotes. Now, we're looking at verse 17 to 20 of chapter 2, and Paul began to identify several sources of religious arrogance you know for jews their title the very name jew came from judah meaning yahweh be praised this wonderful reminder of covenant would also become the source of smugness their possession of the law is the second god chose the hebrew people to bear his word Many thought this responsibility exempted them from God's judgment. And thirdly, the unique relationship with God. To boast in means to claim superiority, standing because of something or someone, uh, and to express a high degree of confidence because of it. The term almost always had a negative connotation. And then their knowledge of God's will. As recipients of the divine instruction, they were capable of discerning his plan for the ages in addition 
to the law and carefully preserve the writings of the prophets knowledge of the future and undoubtedly uh, feed the elitist national pride and lastly the responsibility to instruct the nations god charged the jews with the responsibility to teach the rest of the world about him a duty that was as old as the covenant with abraham and they were to be a guide to the blind a light to those in darkness a connector of the foolish uh, a teacher of the immature we see this in verse 19 and 20 now many jews thought mere possessions of truth automatically gave them superiority and the ability to accomplish their tasks now the dark side of these blessings was pride such arrogance that many jews referred to gentiles as dogs now paul's purpose was not to bash his fellow jews or to suggest that their unique privilege as god's chosen people were bad but to help his jewish readers understand that uh, the religion did not do anything for them did nothing uh, to tr- uh, but it was to transform them thus behaving correctly on the outside will do nothing to cleanse the inside and that's the definition of religion after all doing external things to make the inner person worthy of salvation this disparity between the inner and the outer righteousness inevitably leads to hypocrisy now looking at uh, just a brief overview of verses 21 to 24 Uh, the apostle then donned the robes of a barrister to cross-examine the self-righteous Jew first by probing into his integrity and then by bringing back the irrefutable evidence of guilt against the source of you know the religious pride his heritage and asked five questions and the questions go something like you who teach another do you not teach yourself second question you who preach that one shall not steal do you steal third question you who say that one should not commit adultery do you commit adultery fourth question you who abhor idols do you rob temples fifth question you who boast in the law though you're breaking the law do you dishonor god now if by any chance the individuals could answer no to the first four and dared to deny the fifth he could not escape the indictment of the prophets of Isaiah and Ezekiel the Jews could not any more than the gentiles could claim exemption from God's judgment on the basis of personal holiness or or righteous heritage the name god is blasphemed among the gentiles because of you just as it is written and here in chapter 2 verse 24 uh, paul is quoting isaiah chapter 52 verse 5 uh, which states now therefore what have i here declares the lord seeing that my people are taken away from nothing their rulers wail declares the lord and continually all the day my name is despised therefore my people shall know my name therefore in that day they shall know that it is i who speak here am i how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who 
publishes peace who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation who says to Zion your God reigns and then we go to verses 25 to 29 of chapter 2 Romans this is if somehow uh, Paul's Jewish readers remained unconvinced he addressed most personal and intimate aspects of the Jewish religious heritage circumcision represented a Jewish man's participation in God's covenant with Abraham from his early days in Genesis chapter 17. This initiation accomplished uh, on his behalf on the eighth day of life and was visible reminder of God had claimed the boy as his own and that he should be a son of the covenant. Many Jews thought participation in God's covenant with Abraham exempted them from divine wrath. Now, according to Paul, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, drawing on the prophets of the Old Testament, he reminded his kinsmen that circumcision is but an outward symbol of what should be true on the inside. You see, God cares more about uh, the circumcision of the heart. And we can find this in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4, in which followers show honor to his character by being like him, by obeying his law. Now, a classical sign of religion, uh, which is overemphasized as a secondary thing and neglected the primary things, we can accomplish physical circumcision on our own that which religion requires but we can do nothing without God's help that which is circumcision of the heart requires a kind of surgery beyond our capabilities that a supernatural operation needs to occur which creates the outward symbol of this true circumcision which is obedience now Paul emphatically stated that uh, the Lord prefers a Gentile with a circumcised heart over a disobedient Jew bearing the outward symbol of a broken covenant. Uh, which would you prefer? An unfaithful spouse who proudly wears your wedding band or mate who guards your shared intimacy with her life or his life but doesn't wear a ring? Is not the wedding ring a circular gold symbol of eternal fidelity. It's supposed to be an outward symbol of what true of the wearer's heart. How foolish to think that the ring is the most important element of a marriage union. Furthermore, how foolish is it to think that the ring can keep a person faithful to his or her spouse. Circumcision and the wedding ring have a lot in common. Uh, they are supposed to be an outward symbol of an inner conviction. Sounds familiar to baptism, uh, of course. Unfortunately, religion places undue emphasis on the uh, symbol while ignoring God's consideration for which is most important.